All right. Let's remember where we are. Abraham, not too long ago, went down into Egypt. It wasn't a good choice on his behalf, on his part. Quit correcting me, I know. There were repercussions from that choices, from that choice of him going down into Egypt. And one of the uh, repercussions was a, seems good on the, on the outside is the fact that he and Lot both came back wealthier. Both of their, uh, their camps, both of their tribes came back wealthier out of Egypt than when they went into Egypt. But this caused strife. And uh, there was strife between the two camps now, Abraham and Lot, because they left Egypt wealthier than when they went in. They had, lar- they had more uh, cattle, they had more sheep, they had more goats, they had more people. And they were too large to live together now. So this, this wealth was causing disagreements, to put it nicely. So Abram and Lot separate. And Abram, in his humility, he says, listen, let, let there no, be no strife between me and you. Um, so, so he says, Lot, you choose, right? Uh, you look around and, and you make the first choice. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. No matter what, you go first. So God's word says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley and it was well watered. It reminded him of the garden of the Lord, which is the garden of Eden. And it also reminded him of the land of Egypt. And so he chose that. It says that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And the problem with that, of course, is why that was an unwise choice on Lot's behalf was because Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. And it's a choice that would end up tormenting Lot. It would greatly distress him, both physically and spiritually. And, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't Abram's fault that Lot made that choice, but yet that's a repercussion of Abram's sin in the sense of going down to Egypt. Uh, Lot fell in love with Egypt to a certain degree, so when he came back, he chose that over being separated from that. So, today, Genesis 14, in the continuing adventures of Abram, uh, we're going to see the kings make war, we're going to see Abram rescue Lot, and we're going to meet the mysterious Melchizedek. All right, so let's read Genesis chapter 14, the entire chapter. It's only 20-some-odd verses, so, you know, it's good. 24. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, and Kedorleomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea as we would know it today. And twelve years they had served Kedor Leomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedor Leomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim, in Ham, the Amim, in Sheveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. It sounds like you're reading something from a Lord of the Rings book. Right, And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hezazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Cato Leomar, the king of Elam, the title king of Goim, and 
Aramphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, that would be uh, slime pits or oil pits or tar pits or however you might want to uh, translate that. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, so Abram's nephew, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cato, Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the illustration that we have here, the example that we have here to follow about how we should be in the world in which we live. We thank you for this, and we pray, Lord, that your words be spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 refers to these battles, to this war that we just read here, as the slaughter of the kings. It's also known as the Battle of the Vale of Siddim. It's also known as the War of the Nine Kings. And it's also known as the Slaughter of Kedorlaomer, which is how you pronounce that name, which is really difficult to pronounce. Right? They're all great movie titles, by the way. I said, like I said, straight out of the Lord of the Rings or something. This is the first war mentioned in the Bible. Strangely enough, it's also associated with the first use of the number 13. Verse 4. Right? Twelve years after they had served uh, Kedalomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So it's associated with the number 13. So, to keep it simple, without trying to repeat all those names which we can't pronounce, right? you have four kings from the north. Now, if you want to know what the north is, that's basically Babylon and Persia. Babylon was a big empire. There's a north and a south and an east and a west, Babylon, right? Babylonia and Persia. That's where those four kings from the north are coming from. Uh, Amraphel, Ariok, Kedoleomar, and Tidal. Okay, those four kings come from that area. Today, that would be Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Iran, 
Okay, so that's the areas. So these four kings come down and attack five kings from the south. The reason they're coming down to attack them is that these five kings basically were rebelling against Cato Leomar, who had been ruling over them for 12 years. 13th year they rebelled, and the 14th year he comes down to set them straight, right? So he comes down and he attacks these five kings from the south. So these kings are Bera and Bersha and Shinab and Shimember and the king of Bela. Most of these kingdoms were on the east side of the Dead Sea. So these battles took place in and around what today would be basically Israel, Jordan, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank. Um, you get the picture. So, yeah, exactly. The same areas they're still fighting today. Right? So these kingdoms have been fighting ever since. Now, it's also very similar to what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39, because you have many of these same nations with a few extra allies thrown in that are going to come down from the north through Damascus to attack Israel. They're going to lose that war, by the way. So you have the four kings from the north come down to fight the five kings from the south. Archaeology has shown that the, the destruction was tremendous. If you, I, don't, I didn't bring a map. But if you look at, if you look at the map of Israel today, look at the Dead Sea, and come in from the top uh, and come down around and go almost to the bottom of Israel and come back up on the west side and go back out the top, that's the path they traveled. They went through, they created destruction, they defeated kingdom after kingdom, basically, and went back out and took everything with them. Strangely enough, Abram was in there, too, and they didn't touch Abram, right? But we'll see what Abram did in a second, right? So the cities were left in ruins, countryside was laid to waste, populations were wiped out or taken captive. Uh, so this war, being the first war mentioned in the Bible, has had a hotbed of research done on it, okay? Which means a ton of people have researched this war, left, right, inside and out, upside and down. And uh, the, the research on this battle is tremendous. Now, when you look at research and, and archaeological, historical artifacts that, you know, um, <clears throat> the evidence that they have to support that this war actually happened, um, there is a burgeoning body of evidence to support it. There is really no evidence to not support it. Okay? Despite the fact that many um, historians might say, well, the Bible is the only one that supports it. We can't find any other evidence. Well, that's not true. Right? There is a lot of other evidence. There's at least three artifacts in the British Museum that clearly verify, for example, that Cato Leomar, the king of Elam, not only existed, but he also turned against the king of Shinar and he attacked his city. So the, you have those artifacts in the British Museum. And then you have an, archaeological, an archaeologist whose name was Nelson Gluick, and he documented the destruction that le was left by these kings. And in his... <coughs> um, you know, study of this, not just his study, but he actually went to the area and, you know, excavated and followed the path and did the whole thing. He said that he found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins and the countryside was laid waste and the population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. And for hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkempt with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. Which sounds pretty much like how Babylon left places when they went in and took people captive and, and left. Now, today if we saw a war like this happen, we would think it's just a minor skirmish. <laughs> right? uh, on the scale of things today, it's not a huge war because back then kingdoms were small and they were more like city-states. You know? But at this time, this was a major international conflict. Um, and you might have thought that four kings coming down from the north 
to, fighting against five kings in the south would be easily defeated. Five kings you would expect to have more people, larger kingdoms. They could defeat four kings. Five could defeat four. The odds you would think were in the favor of the five kings. However, um, and also especially when you think, when you read the names of the five kings, by the way, uh, in the south, they're all possibly tribes of Anakim, so which means they were all possibly giants. Okay, so you have these five, these five kingdoms that were possibly all giants who get attacked by these four kings from the north, and yet the four kings come in and pretty much just wipe them out. Right? Because the five kings were woefully unprepared <laughs> for battle. And we see that in a couple ways. One is in verse 10. It says that when they fled, they fell into their own slime pits, as if they didn't realize they were there. Right? Even though the whole countryside, in a sense, you could say, was full of them. That area is full of oil and uh, tar and that, that type of stuff. Um, also, just, oh, by the way, Bible trivia, here's one for your trivia night. Um, Rockefeller launched his excavation in the Middle East to find oil because of the verses here in chapter 14 of Genesis. All right? So, one might say that the slime pits or the oil pits or the bitumen pits were the whole reason that there was a war to begin with. Right? That's why there's going to be a war, in my opinion. That's why there's going to be a war later on. It's for the energy. It's for the oil. So, but another thing we look at when we look through the Bible to see what the nations were like during that time and how those nations of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the sister kingdoms around them, what they were like, it tells us in Ezekiel 16, it says, uh, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food, they had prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty, they were arrogant, and they did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. What does that tell us? It tells us that the lifestyle of the wicked in and around the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, as described in Ezekiel, for example, did not prepare them for battle. Why? Because they were lazy, they were slothful, they were arrogant, they were fat, they were prideful. Yeah. And many nations today have become this way, right? Well, and I, want, I don't want to say the whole nation. Let's just say the kingdom, the kings, right? The, the governments of many nations to, uh, today have become this way, right? They're unfit for battle. They're unprepared for battle, right? They've become lazy and slothful and arrogant, prideful, etc. Now, since Lot lived among the people of Sodom, surprise, he was taken captive, right? Now, Lot didn't stop, start the war. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? Right, Spurgeon says, those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. And Lot, that's what Lot was doing. He was suffering for conforming to the world. He was suffering for making a choice and pointing his tent towards Sodom and eventually, you know, we learned he, he didn't even learn from this. This, this didn't help him at all either because he ends up living in Sodom. So this didn't even scare him away. He was so worldly in that sense. He just, he would not stay away. Now, some say that the Lord was disciplining, disciplining Lot by allowing him to be captured. Um, could be, right? Because we know that God disciplines those he loves. And he will often go to extreme measures sometimes to get your attention, right? You're heading uh, the wrong way. That's a destructive way to go. Let me get your attention, and you'll do something extreme to do it. Possibly the Lord was giving him a wake-up call in that sense, right? 
Lot, you have no business living near Sodom. They're evil and wicked, immoral. Get away from them. Though, like we said, Lot didn't learn from this, unfortunately. He did not learn from this. So now as we continue on in chapter 14 and we get down to verse 13, we find Abraham, Abram, the Hebrew warrior. Right? It's the first time they mention him being a Hebrew. It's the first time the word Hebrew is associated with Abram. But I want you to see this. Abram wasn't about to go out and fight the battle against the northern kings until he found out that his nephew, Lot, was taken captive, right? Then he mustered the troops. Personally, to me, this is a, a, a picture of Christ. Everyone had their expectations of the Messiah. Everyone had their expectations. And when Jesus came, and the disciples knew he was the Messiah, what did they expect him to do? What did they want him to do? They wanted him to go in and defeat and drive out Rome, right? They wanted him to fight a, a battle. They wanted him to fight, I mean, sword and shield, you know, suit of armor, let's go and drive out Rome. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. However, what was Jesus' purpose? Jesus clearly stated it, right? He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. That's what I've come to do. That was the purpose, right, of his death and his resurrection. So Jesus did come and fight a battle, absolutely. He defeated death. He holds the key to death in Hades. And now through our faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. That's the battle that Jesus fought. It wasn't a worldly battle. But it was a battle nonetheless. So I see that same kind of picture here with Abram. Because you have this international conflict going on. You have this humongous war going on in the area in which you're living. And you don't hear anything about Abram getting people ready or getting his troops prepared or going out and fighting the northern kings at all. Someone has to come to him and tell him, hey, I escaped barely with my life, right? He comes dragging into camp with his leg behind him and blood pouring out, and I'm, I'm barely alive, Abram. They, they captured your nephew. They took your nephew Lot, and then what does Abram do? Get the troops ready, right? Let's go. They have Lot, right? He went to seek and save the lost. He went in to go get Abram. That was his mission. It wasn't to fight the worldly battle. It was to go rescue Lot. That was his mission, so he enters into battle when it was time to seek and save Lot. And it would seem, in contrast to the southern kings, or to the northern kings, sorry. Well, no, the southern kings. In contrast to the southern kings, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abram, in contrast to them, Abram and his men, they were trained and they were ready. Right? Because Abram was a man who walked in faith, but yet he was also a prudent man. So we look at this when we see verse 14, for example. It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, which just means raised in his camp, right? All these people were raised under Abram, trained by Abram, not just raised to fight, but raised in the faith, right? So, so they trust Abram. Abram trusts the Lord. So they were armed, they were trained, and they were united as one. And Abram trusted them, 
They trusted Abram. And Abram also shows that he has military wisdom here. Right? The clever tactic of a, a night attack. Right? He splits his army into two groups and he attacks them from different directions at once. He demoralizes them and he sends them running back home to mommy. Right? Right? Abram succeeds in rescuing Lot and not just rescuing Lot, but recovering all the plunder, all the goods that had been taken, that had been seized by the four kings. You have 318 men that Abram brought against possibly thousands. Right? Shades of Gideon against the Midianites here. You have four kings defeated by one. When the five couldn't even do it together. Why? Because they were defeated by God. Because that's who was on Abram's side. Right? So just from this part, really quick before we move on what you should understand is we live in a world at war. Right? We live in a world at war. Man wants to war and conquer all the time. Right? Here in the USA, we're seeing conflict and strife to, to strife to, to such an extreme that you know, many say it's heading towards another civil war. Right? So we have kings fighting against kings or governors fighting against governors or governors fighting against presidents or you know, whoever all these politicians fight against. And if like Lot... Right? If you've placed your hope in the world and in the leaders of the world, if you've placed your tent towards Sodom, right? towards the temptations, the immorality of the world, guess what? Eventually you're going to be living in that world. Right? And Romans 1 describes the person who lives that way. Right? It says that person is one who knows God's righteous decree which Lot did. He knows God's righteous decree concerning sexual immorality, concerning unrighteousness, concerning maliciousness, concerning murder, concerning abortion, concerning evil. And yet, they not only do these things themselves, they give approval to those who practice them. And Lot, by moving himself closer and closer to Sodom and eventually living in Sodom, was doing exactly that. Right? And that's where you eventually end up. When you continue to pitch your tent towards the world, you eventually end up in the world, approving of what the world says is right. right? When the world is calling good evil and evil good, right? that's eventually where you end up if you keep placing your tent that way. Guess what? That is not where you want to be. Right? I mean, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. That's the struggle. Right? It keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. So where should you be? Well, you should be separated from the world and separated unto God. That's where Abram was. And if you look at Abram, he was separated from the world. He wasn't camped towards Sodom. Right? But he was not isolated from the world. He was separated, but not isolated. He was in the world, but not of the world. Abram was independent. He was a stranger and a pilgrim. But he was not indifferent to what was happening around him. And you aren't to be either. Right? You aren't to be apathetic. You're to be sympathetic. Right? You're to be caring. You're to be loving. Like Micah 6.8 tells us, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So Abram goes in and he rescues Lot, but not just Lot. He brings back all the possessions stolen and all the women and all the people, right? A godly man, a man of faith, who did far more than any of the kings of the south could do. And guess what? The kings of the south noticed. They did. Because <laughs> he, he, he basically pulled them out of the fire, right? And they came to greet him, well, at least the king of Sodom does. And then one other interesting person comes out to greet him as well. From Salem, or as we would know it, Jerusalem, right? The high priest and the king of Salem, Melchizedek. We see that in verse 17, actually, actually 18. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, communion. Look at that, brought out bread and wine, right? He was priest of God Most High, Melchizedek. It's the first use of the king of peace, because Salem means peace. So Melchizedek was the king of peace. It's also the first use of high priest. It's also the first use of most high God. And what does it all surround? It all surrounds this person, Melchizedek. We have no idea where Melchizedek came from in the sense that we don't know his lineage. Right? We don't know how he came to be in Canaan. Because if you really think about it, it's kind of a weird spot for this person to be in this pagan, idolatrous area. Yet he is the high priest of the God, of God Most High, right smack dab in the middle of all these pagan nations. Right? We don't know how he came to be a worshiper. We don't know how he came to be the priest of the God Most High. We don't know how Abram came to know him. All we know is, is that he was there. And when this battle got done, that Abram fought, which God won, he shows up and comes out to bless Abram. Right? right smack dab in the middle of conflict. Right? Here's this high priest. Here's this king of peace. In this paganistic society, you have a king of peace and a high priest and the most high God. So you have to ask yourself, well, who is this Melchizedek? Because right? he's not, I mean... There's like a, a psalm or something that mentions him, and then the book of Hebrew, of course. But it's not like he's all throughout the entire Bible that we have this whole thing that explains everything about Melchizedek, right? Well, if you ask yourself who is Melchizedek, you're not going to get a definitive answer, right? Some scholars think that Melchizedek may have been Shem, who was still alive at the time. He lived 35 years after Abraham died. Some think that his name is just a title, and I say that because later when Joshua conquers Jerusalem in Joshua 10, he kills Adonai Zedek, right? Melchizedek, Adonai Zedek, right? So they think, which meant my Lord is righteous. That's what his name meant. Um, so, so they think that Melchizedek uh, may have, that his name is a title. It wasn't his real name. Some think this is a Christophany, right? A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We see those throughout the Old Testament, um, I don't know if I can go that far, and I'll tell you why. First, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Um, gave him a tenth of all the spoils. But Abraham never worshipped him or recognized him as Lord. Okay, Which usually you see with a pre-incarnate or a theophany in the Old Testament, a Christophany or a theophany. They recognize that they're speaking to God. Right? 
Um, even sometimes when just an angel appears, they fall down flat on their face and they're like, Lord. And he's like, get up, I'm just an angel. Don't worship me, right? But when, when you have a, a Christophany or a theophany and an appearance of God in the, in the Old Testament, if people, people realize who they're talking to, their, their response is usually, holy cow, I'm still alive, I can't believe it. Or they worship him and he accepts their worship, right? So you don't see that here. You don't see Abraham recognizing them that way. Also, Melchizedek performs a religious ceremony. He comes out with the bread and the wine and he blesses Abram. That's a little not typical to the other Christophanies, okay? I do think, though, that, and I think this is the only one thing that we could actually agree on with all the different interpretations of Melchizedek. Um, I do think, though, that Melchizedek is absolutely a type of Christ, right? He's a messianic typology. That's what we would call it. Why do I think this? Well, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, Right? That's what his name means. He's the king of Salem, which means he's the king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And righteousness and peace are often found together. Right? Peace is a fruit of righteousness, as the Bible tells us. True peace can be experienced only on the basis of righteousness. Matter of fact, Romans 5.1, some of you people can quote it probably off the top of your heads. Therefore, since we have been justified or found righteous would be another way to say that. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So the title, King of Righteousness and King of Peace, certainly apply to Jesus. Now, it says in Hebrews, when you study Melchizedek, it says in Hebrews he was without father or mother. And this is one of the confusing aspects concerning Melchizedek. And this is in Hebrews chapter 7. It says he's without father, he's without mother, he's without genealogy, right? And he's without a beginning or an end. So people think, oh, he's my it's mysterious, right? Well, it is kind of mysterious, right? But you'll find also if you study this that pretty much all biblical commentators can't agree on what that means, Okay. Uh, but many think that saying that he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning nor you know, days or an end of life, um, and it also says in Hebrews 7 that he is made like the Son of God, um, it means that Melchizedek you know, was a heavenly being. Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is what they base a Christophany on. Um, that's the main argument for a Christophany. However, when it says that he has no mother or no father or no genealogy, no beginning or end. That just means they can't find any record of it. That's all it means, <laughs> right? We don't need to take it much farther than that. That's really all it means is that they have never found any record of gene his genealogy. Guess what? Jesus has a record of his genealogy. It's in Matthew. It's in Luke, right? It's a pretty clear record, right? Melchizedek was a man who was a real king, who was a real high priest, right, in a real city, but as far as existing records are concerned, he, he, he wasn't born and he didn't die. They have no records of it. He just exists. So it's mysterious. And it is. <laughs> it is mysterious. Right? It, when it says that he was made like the Son of God in Hebrews 7, that word, made like, in, in the Greek, is another word that we can't pronounce. But I'll try it. It's aphomoeia menos, okay? Aphomoeia menos. 
And that Greek word, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. That's the only place it's used is to describe Melchizedek. when He's made like the Son of God. It is a suggestive word. Okay? And what that means is that if you use it in, the, in an active sense, it means, of, uh, it means uh, facsil- facsimile copy or model. If you use it in the passive sense, it means being made similar to. So no matter which way you want to use it, what it means is he wasn't the son of God, but he was made similar to or was a copy of the son of God. He's a type of Christ. Right? He is a picture of Christ, a messianic typology. He was both high priest and king. Right? Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to what? According to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is high priest and king forever, eternally, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood, though, is superior, right? Because Levitical priests, for example, die, but Jesus lives forever, right? Jesus is truly a high priest forever, eternally. He intercedes forever. He's an unchanging, his priesthood is an unchanging priesthood that remains into eternity. He is our king and he is our high priest. Jesus. So Christophany, I don't know if I can go that far. I'm not going to say no. I won't discount it completely. Because what do I know? <laughs> One day we'll find out. Maybe that was just this really different appearance of Jesus than we see anywhere else with all the other Christophanies in the Old Testament. You never know. Also, I'm not going to discount it completely. But type of Christ? Absolutely. Without a doubt. No question, definitely a type of Christ. The important thing for us to understand is, really, it's not really about who Melchizedek is. It's about who Jesus is. Right? It's about who Jesus is. Because Melchizedek, he's mysterious and he's great. But Jesus is greater. So, after this, right, what this sets up here in the last part of the chapter, is that after this victory always comes the possibility of compromise. What do I mean? The king of Sodom comes out, right? He comes out to greet Abram. Maybe he was covered in oil, tar, from the pit he fell into when he was trying to flee and save his life, right? He crawls out to meet Abram, happy that Abram drove off all these kings from the north, right? And he says, Abram, I want you to take all the goods as your reward. Just, just give me my people, but you can take everything else. You can take all the stuff. You can take it. Just have it all. I'm so happy. You just take everything. Take it as a reward. And that seems great. I mean, that seemed, I mean the guy is, over, is overjoyed, right, that he drove the northern kings out. It seems good. There's a quote, though, from Dave Guzik that says, when we are willing to pursue human measures of success in the flesh through worldly fleshly methods, how can we really say God is given success? This is what Abram tells him, actually. If it should come, how much better to let God raise you up so he gets the glory and so you know it was his work? This is what Abram tells him. Abram's reply to the king. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is Lord yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram tells him, I have everything I need. I don't need any of your stuff. I don't need any of it. Because I don't need you to come back and say, well, I'm the one who made Abram the man he is today. 
because I gave him all this wealth. Abram is a rich king because of me. He says, no, my wealth comes from God, and I have everything I need. I lack nothing because I have God. Here's the thing. If you give your all to God, right, if you have received a blessing from the Lord, as we have through Christ, as Abram has received here through Melchizedek. Melchizedek came out and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek came out and blessed Abram. Abraham understood exactly what that blessing was. Right? He gives the guy tenth of, tenth of everything. If you, if you give your all to God, if you have received a blessing from the Lord as we have, you will have nothing to gain from the world because you lack nothing. Because you lack nothing. Right? Psalms 23 tells us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which you could say that Abram just walked through with these battles and these wars, even stepping into faith into the land of Canaan. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right? You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is, Abram understood this. I don't lack anything. I don't need anything. Let everyone else divide it up. I don't need it. Right? Because we lack nothing. Medal of Honor, guess what? Not needed, right? Million dollar payday, guess what? Not needed. Right? Book deals, movie deals, whatever, nope, don't need it. Right? We don't need the spoils of war. We don't need the reward. We have a heavenly reward. We got everything we need. Abram didn't fight from selfish motives. Right? He didn't go out there to rescue Lot so he could become rich and wealthy. He was already rich and wealthy, actually. Right? He didn't go out there for that. Why did he go out there? He fought for love, right? Because he loved the Lord and he loved Lot. When he heard his nephew was in danger, he went out to save his nephew. He wanted God to get the glory. Abram didn't want the glory. He just wanted Lot safe, really, right? Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram knew it was a victory of faith. Abram knew who won the battle. He understood, right? It was a victory due to God. So, in closing, here's the thing. We fight a spiritual battle, right? We don't fight a physical one, though it might seem like physical ones are like on the horizon. Right? We don't wrestle against, the, against flesh and blood, as it tells us in Ephesians, but against rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers or the present darkness, right? against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? But the physical battles, they're out there. They're, they're looming closer. Wars and rumors of wars every single second of every day. If you've been paying attention to the threats from Putin concerning us, because we keep sending arms over to the Ukraine, and he's upset, right? Um, just this week, there's been a lot of activity with uh, um, sub hunters over on the East Coast uh, near Washington, D.C., just off the coast there. Tons of activity because they think there's a Russian sub parked out over there. He has the technology to take out our East Coast faster than we can blink. So there's, 
There is, there's all these threats and stuff like that. But, so, do we need to be trained and ready for battle? Yes. Physically, that's up to you. Right? Spiritually, absolutely. Right? Absolutely, 100%, we need to be trained, prepared, and ready for battle. See, Abram was trained, prepared, and ready both physically and spiritually for that moment if he needed to. Right? God calls his people to push back against ungodliness right? by standing for righteousness sake, for standing for the word of God and for the truth. Right? But we can't fight those battles with the weapons of the world. We can't fight those battles right? dressed up in our gear and our AR-15s. Right? We got to rely on the weapons that God supplies. Right? Because it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for example, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We can't wage war that way. Right? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons of our warfare, the armor of God, spirit of truth, sword, the shield, the word of God, prayer, right? This is how we fight our battles. But when needed, much like Abram, there will be times that we may have to head into the fray. But our purpose isn't defeat kings necessarily. It's to rescue those who are lost. Right? Spiritually speaking, we do have to be armed and ready with the, and, you know, with the armor of God so that we can go into those situations and we can pull out those we love, right? Families, friends, neighbors, those we care for. Pull them out, pick them back up, and point them to Jesus. Because the world's not going to do that. The world's going to trample them. The world's going to string them up. The world's going to let them leave them there and, and die. When people point their tent towards the world, they will be taken captive. They will be taken captive. And if we love them, then we need to go bring them out. Lot didn't learn. They may not learn either. That's not really the point, actually. That's not really the point. What you do or what they do when they learn the truth, when you bring them back out, when you point them to Christ, what they do with that's their choice, actually. It's not yours. It's tough because we love them. We want to make their decisions for them sometimes. (laughs) We can't make their decisions for them. But when needed, we are to do that. So that's why we have to be spiritually armed and ready for battle. We need, as it says in 1 Corinthians, we need to be watchful. We need to stand firm in the faith. We need to act like men. We need to be strong. But we need to let all that you do be done in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the strength and the power of your word, for the examples that it gives us, for the world that we live in, how relevant your word is. Even when we're talking about things that happened thousands of years ago, it still applies. Your word's amazing. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the, the armor of God. We thank you for the word of God. 
We thank you for how you protect us and how you fight our battles. We pray, Lord, that we can continue to rely on you, to look to you to get our strength from you instead of trying to do this on the terms that the world sets. We pray, Lord, that we just continue to keep our eyes focused on you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.